Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. I wanted to do a deep dive, sort of a conversations with great minds here with Sarah Kamali, uh, Dr. Sarah Kamali, PhD, holistic justice activist and a scholar of systemic inequities and white nationalism at the University of Michigan and the author of the new book, Homegrown Hate. The subtitle is Why White Nationalists and Militant Islamists Are Waging War Against the United States. Uh, her website is Sarah Kamali, S-A-R-A-K-A-M-A-L-I.com. Uh, Sarah Kamali is also her Twitter handle, spelled the same way. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the program. Tell me, first of all, your subtitle conflates white nationalists and militant Islamists as both waging war against the United States. What is the common denominator there? Okay, yeah. Thank you. First of all, I do want to say it's wonderful to be here. So thank you for having me. And regarding um, the respective worldviews and, and the mutual sense of victimhood that both white nationalists and militant Islamists share. So I wouldn't say conflate, I would say compare. And the okay. com- one of the common denominators is the sense of victimhood based on their own interpretations of what's going on in the world today. For the white nationalists, it's very much predicated upon immigration and people of color, both of which are seen to be threats to not only the white race in numerical terms, but also the white race in terms of biology as well as uh, culture, essentially. And then with militant Islamists, the sense of victimhood really comes from U.S.-led foreign policy in the majority countries. So even militant Islamists in the United States, for example, very much feel an affinity to Muslims whom they consider true Muslims, not fellow Muslim Americans, but Muslim civilians in Muslim-majority countries who are often victims of U.S.-led wars. Would that be specifically the Israel-Palestine conflict? Well, that's one example. Then there's also in Afghanistan, in Iraq, even Mm. the lack of intervention. So it's not necessarily hot wars, but the lack of intervention, for example, when it comes to the Rohingya in Myanmar. So there are a variety of issues. And one other prominent one is also the human rights abuses in Guantanamo Bay. 
Right, and not to mention the group in China that's being persecuted. It's also Muslim. Right. And with white people in the United States, to put it what you said in plain English, is it that <laughs> what you're finding is that a lot of this freak out is from white people who feel, you know, this is Tucker Carlson's, you know, great white replacement theory, the Turner Diaries, you know, it's at the core of the Turner Diaries, the novel that animated Tim McVeigh to blow up the federal building in the 90s, you know, in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Camp of the Saints, you know, the other book, these two big novels that are required reading, sort of like Ayn Rand is required reading for libertarians. These two books are the required reading for these white racists. They're freaked out that People of color are numerically increasing in the United States to the point that they will ultimately, quote, replace white people. Here's the thing that baffles me. If white people who are sensing some oppression or victimhood or whatever, or Muslims for that matter, who are sensing this, are going to arms. They're killing people. They're blowing things up. We haven't had so much of a problem with uh, radical Islam in the United States, you know, really since uh, the first two years of of the Bush administration, I think. But certainly, you know, white rage is huge. Why aren't black people doing the same thing? I mean, they've they've been crushed for 400 years in this country and they're you know among the best citizens i mean they're they're out there demanding actual democracy and justice and the rule of law not let's overthrow the government i mean how is it that the group that has the greatest asset base white people the group that has the greatest privilege base white people is the group that is becoming violent and the group and I should probably say groups because it's not just black people. There are other minorities, Native Americans in particular, but also Hispanics somewhat, and Asian American Pacific Islanders, who are like, you know, on the receiving end of being trashed by white people. Are, targeted. targeted. Yeah, targeted. Thank you. Yeah. That's a much better word. Mm-hmm. Are not doing this. I mean, you know, the, the closest we ever got to this was the Black Panthers, and the Black Panthers was a purely defensive, an openly purely defensive group. I mean, I suppose you could argue some some dimensions of, of uh, you know, uh, what Malcolm X's rhetoric said, taken out of context. But, but even there, I mean, I, I just, why? Is this what happens when majorities start losing their majorities? I mean, is there a long precedent for this? So a few themes there. Also, we need to include, well, you did mention Hispanics, but there's also the historically minoritized communities in the United States, of course, are not disparate groups. There's a combination thereof. We can you know, speak all day to the different combinations. But there are a myriad of minoritized groups in the United States, as you mentioned, that are targets of white nationalist violence. As a side note, just before I begin to answer the main point of your question, Malcolm X, towards the end of his life, very much spoke to the common humanity and solidarity amongst oppressed groups. So while he's often seen as sparking the um, black nationalist movement, and he did have a have a role in terms of his rhetoric and what he was trying to achieve at the end of his life, very much also spoke to solidarity amongst oppressed groups. With regards right. to with regard to why white nationalists in particular have engaged in violence as we have most prominently seen with January 6th. It's specifically actually because of that privilege that you mentioned. So there's this sense that there within white nationalism, as I discuss in the book, and I do talk extensively about the Great Replacement Theory, about the Turner Diaries, about Andrew McDonald's pen name, 
for the author. And the idea essentially that there's something inherently and even in some schools of thought divinely superior about white people specifically is what often creates this also dual narrative that there's something that needs to be protecting and that is also under attack because of this special status. And it is because of this privilege that you mentioned that white nationalists are able to enact and carry out violence and express their beliefs in violent terms, whereas other groups, you know, as we've seen with January 6th, for example, and perhaps we're forgetting this now in the attempt to rewrite history of that day and the fallout since then. But Black Lives Matter advocates, for example, have been faced with a lot of militarized police presences, whereas that was certainly not the case on January 6th. Right. Absolutely. I want to continue this conversation, if it's all right with you, Sarah. Can you stick around for a little bit? Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. We're talking with Sarah Kamali. Her new book is Homegrown Hate. SarahKamali.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. S-A-R-A-K-A-M-A-L-I.com and on Twitter as well. So, Sarah, tell me how Donald Trump fits into all this. He certainly harnessed a lot of the grievances, which I discussed in the book. And we didn't get a chance, but earlier you did mention or you did ask, you know, whether this is essentially the latest salvo or is this a different iteration, essentially, was the kind of the main thrust mm-hmm. of your last question. And what we can see is that while Donald Trump has not incited any new tensions or new flames, the white nationalist rhetoric in the worldview has been the same for decades, if not centuries, but he has certainly harnessed it for political gain, as we are very much seeing today, for example. So the way that I detail white nationalism or that I define and categorize white nationalism within my book, Homegrown Hate, is that we have anti-government groups, we have racist groups, and then we have racist groups that have a religious religious expression of racism. And then there are also groups that are conspiracy theory oriented. And then, of course, a mix thereof. So those are the four primary categories. And then there's there's cross-pollination amongst those four. And so Donald Trump, both with his rhetoric and his policies as president, as well as since then, have certainly capitalized and exacerbated much of the the anxieties within those categories of white nationalists. It seems to me like when Trump's statements that, you know, I don't want a black guy counting my money, I want a little guy with a yarmulke, you know, this kind of racial hierarchy ideology that was a very prominent pseudoscience in the United States in the 1920s with the eugenics movement that was embraced by President Woodrow Wilson. I mean, we have a long history of this. You don't have to go back to the era of slavery for this. We can look at it in the 20th century. That Trump You know, he said those things and they got out in the press. He never walked them back. And the press didn't deal with them like, holy crap, this is part of a much larger narrative. Instead, it was dealt with like, oh, Trump, you know, does a rhetorical boo-boo or, you know. Yeah. Can you speak to that? I mean, it seems to me like those were the things that he was talking right to those white nationalists, those white supremacists. 
Yes, as was often the case, as we've seen during one presidential debate when he was asked explicitly by the moderator, as well as then presidential candidate Biden, to... To disavow them, yeah. Exactly, to disavow white nationalists. And then he said, stand back and stand by. He was speaking to the Proud Boys, and they were using that as their motto afterwards. So we can see certainly that there's not necessarily the same accountability. There are certain reasons for that, but we can also see that that same lack of accountability has really been specific to Donald Trump even during his candidacy and the run up to his election. So he has certainly been place. You know, his presidency certainly gave white nationalists legitimacy, both within their rhetoric and their worldviews and within the policies of the United States. Yeah, I get it. Sarah, we got it. Hold on just a second. We'll, We'll pick up this conversation on the other side. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We're talking with Sarah Kamali, Dr. Sarah Kamali, who's uh, the author of this new book, Homegrown Hate, Why White Nationalists and Militant Islamists Are Waging War Against the United States. Sarah, tell me about the international dimension of this. Just a minute ago, you were talking about how so much of this is fueled by this kind of pseudoscience that has been around for centuries, perhaps millennia, but certainly even in the United States was, I said this, was amplified by like Woodrow Wilson and the whole eugenics movement and all this kind of stuff. This idea that white people are somehow at the pinnacle and maybe even, uh, you know, well, there's actually there's a debate within the white supremacy movement about Asians and Jews and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But how is this happening? We see this happening in the United States. How is this playing out internationally? What does this have to do with, for example, the rise of Le Pen in France or generally internationally? And to what extent is there a feedback loop between the international white supremacist movement and the American white supremacist movement? So white nationalism is transnational. And the reason I argue that in the book is not only because of social media, but as we've seen and as you've mentioned eugenics, which I do discuss in the book, that we can see that eugenics, for example, 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, late 1800s was actually transported from Europe as a concept to the United States and really gave birth to Christian identity movement, which is one of the, under one of the categories of white nationalism, as I discussed. So social media has certainly exacerbated the cross-pollination of ideas and the transnational nature, as well as memberships, for example. So we can see that white nationalism as a worldview, and what I mean by white nationalism is the desire for a white ethnostate that is you know, government for the people, by the people, and of the people, but of white people specifically, where people of color are either non-existent or they are second-class citizens. Basically how this country was founded. Yes. And so that's also something that I discuss at length as well, is that how, why white nationalists seek to reclaim the United States in their particular vision, as we have certainly, we are certainly seeing today, today's events within the Republican Party and how the Constitution, for example, is interpreted, which is uh, very often considered to be a divine document inspired by God. So we can see today, too, that even if you look at 
a movement like QAnon, the transnational nature is certainly prevalent. And QAnon is within the conspiracy theory element of uh, white nationalism. But there is certainly a push and pull factor as well that not only was QAnon concomitant, you know, the rise of QAnon concomitant with Donald Trump's presidency, but then we have post-Donald Trump's presidency, we have QAnon very much taking root in other parts of the world that we don't necessarily see as white nationalists, but ethno-nationalists, such as places like Japan. So how this would play out in places that see white nationalism, specifically like in Northern and Western Europe, and like in Australasia, for example, and even Canada, we have certainly the prevalence of white nationalism and very much a shared sense of grievance as well as shared canon. So there are certain documents and books that you've mentioned, but also the motto of the 14 words, for example, that was penned in 1988. So there's a whole shared history that is cohesive because of the way that technology has been manipulated. And that, of course, you know, there's we're publishing houses and all of that before, but now certainly it's been accelerated because of the way technology is yeah. Sarah, we just have one minute until we're going to have to wrap this up. What do we do about this? Well, several things. So it really depends on one's position. So certainly the Biden administration in the new upcoming weeks will be releasing a new counterterrorism approach. And mm-hmm. there needs to be a rethink, essentially, of the Patriot Act. There needs to be a rethink of where the funding and priorities are happening. There needs to be a rethink of, you know, not necessarily a rethink, but the prospect of a January 6th commission, Allah 9-11, like the 9-11 commission, um, will be taken into consideration. And there really needs to be a, a learning of history and a learning of how race as a concept and the, the violent reality of racism has been has been leveraged in order to create and allow white nationalism to exist today. Yeah, I totally get it. And spot on. We've been talking with Dr. Sarah Kamali, holistic justice activist and scholar, University of Michigan, the author of the new book, Homegrown Hate, sarahkamali.com and on Twitter. Hang on just a second, Sarah. Tom Hartman program. Sarah, thanks so much for dropping by. It's been great talking with you. Thank you and for writing a great book. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. My pleasure. Thank you. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
A book today in the uh, Tom Hartman University Book Club is 400 Souls, edited by Ibrahim Kendi and Keisha Blaine. It's an anthology, a remarkable one, a truly remarkable one. This is from the very first chapter. It's titled Arrival, 1619 to 1624. The subtitle of the book, by the way, A Community History of African America, 1619 to 2019. And the book follows that fairly chronologically. 400 years ago, in 1620, a cargo ship lowered its anchor on the eastern shore of North America. It had spent 66 grueling days on the perilous Atlantic Ocean, and its 102 passengers fell into praise as they spotted land for the first time in more than two months. This chapter is by Nicole Hannah-Jones, if I didn't mention that. These Puritans had fled England in search of religious freedom. We know all their names, names such as James Chilton and Francis Cook and Mary Brewster, their descendants proudly traced their lineage back to the group that established self-governance in the New World, that is, new among the white population. Indigenous people were already governing themselves. They arrived on the Mayflower, a vessel that had been called one of the most important ships in American history. Every fall, regaled by stories of the courageous pilgrims, elementary school children whose skin is peach, tan, and chestnut fashioned black captain hats from paper to dress up like the passengers on the Mayflower. Our country has wrapped a national holiday around the Pilgrim's story, ensuring the Mayflower's mythical place in the American narrative. But the year before the Mayflower, in 1619, another ship dropped anchor on the eastern shore of North America. Its name was the White Lion, and it, too, would become one of the most important ships in American history. And yet there is no ship manifest inscribed with the names of its passengers and no descendants society. These people's arrival was deemed so insignificant their humanity so inconsequential that we don't even know how many of those packed into the White Lion's hull came ashore, just that some, quote, 20 and odd Negroes, end quote, disembarked and joined the British colonists in Virginia. But in his sweeping history before the Mayflower, first published in 1962, scholar Lerone Bennett Jr. said of the White Lion, quote, no one sensed how extraordinary she really was, but few ships before or since have unloaded a more momentous cargo. This cargo, this group of 20 to 30 Angolans, sold from the deck of the White Lion by criminal English marauders in exchange for food and supplies, was also foundational to the American story. But while every American child learns about the Mayflower, virtually no American child learns about the White Lion. And yet the story of the White Lion is classically American. It is a harrowing tale, one filled with all the things that this country would rather not remember, a taint on a nation that believes above all else in its exceptionality. The Adams and Eves of black America did not arrive here in search of freedom or a better life. They had been captured and stolen, forced into a ship, shackled, writhing in filth as they suffered and starved. Some 40% of the Angolans who boarded that ghastly vessel did not make it across the Middle Passage. They embarked not as people, but as property, sold to white colonists who were just beginning to birth democracy for themselves, commencing a 400-year struggle between the two opposing ideas foundational to America. And so the White Lion has been relegated to what Bennett called the back alley of American history. There are no annual classroom commemorations of that moment in August of 1619, No children dress up as its occupants or perform classroom skits. No holiday honors it. The White Lion and the people on that ship have been expunged from our collective memory. This omission is intentional. When we are creating a shared history, what we remember is just as revelatory as what we forget. 
If the Mayflower was the advent of American freedom, then the White Lion was the advent of American slavery. And so while arriving just a year apart, one ship and its people had been immortalized and the other completely erased. W.E.B. Du Bois called such erasure the propaganda of history. It is propaganda like this that has led men in the past to insist that history is lies agreed upon, he wrote, and to point out the danger in such misinformation. He wrote this in his influential treatise, Black Reconstruction, 1935. He argued that America had falsified the fact of its history, quote, because the nation was ashamed, end quote. But he warned, quote, it is indeed extremely doubtful if any permanent benefit comes to the world through such action. Because what is clear is that while we erase the memory of the White Lion, we cannot erase its impact. Together, these two ships, the White Lion and the Mayflower, bridging the three continents that made America, would constitute this nation's most quintessential and perplexing elements, underpinning the grave contradictions that we have failed to overcome. These elemental contradictions led founder Thomas Jefferson, some 150 years later, to draft the majestic words declaring the inalienable and universal rights of men for a new country that would hold one-fifth of its population, the literal and figurative descendants of the white lion, in absolute bondage. They would lead Frederick Douglass, one of the founders of American democracy, to issue in 1852 these fiery words commemorating an American revolution that liberated white people while ensuring another century of subjugation for black people. This, for the purpose of this celebration, is the 4th of July, Frederick Douglass wrote. You'll have to catch the book to get the rest of the speech. 400 Souls by Kendi and Blaine. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. A lot on the table here from uh, what is the true nature of white supremacy. I thought that Sarah's point about the international nature of this was fascinating. I have, in the course of the years that I've traveled around the world, I've gotten to know people in a number of other countries. And in two other countries specifically, with people who don't identify themselves as white, I have heard people express the opinion that their particular race one was Asian, one was Middle Eastern, was the superior race. And in fact, that was the main sales pitch during World War II of the whole, you know, uh, Tojo cult, you know, of, of Japan, that they were the superior race, the children of the sun god kind of thing. I mean, this kind of crap has been used to sell, and, you know, obviously it was, you know, what the Crusades were all about, and on it goes. I mean, this kind of crap has been used to sell nationalism, tribalism, if you will, for political gain, more often than not, probably since the beginning of humanity, but certainly since we've had technology that allows it to really spread and to have a scientific patina, you know, from Gutenberg's time forward. And as Sarah pointed out, it's just gone on steroids. And now we're seeing this really become a major part of the political dialogue in the United States now that well over half the Republican Party has embraced Donald Trump and Donald Trump's principal pillar, the principal structural piece of his presidency is white supremacy. I mean, somebody just needs to say it out loud. 
The Republican Party has become the party of white supremacy. It's the old confederacy. It's what the Democratic Party was before 1965. The so-called Dixiecrats, George Wallace. Segregation now, segregation forever, right? Or whatever it is. There were three of them there, but you get my point. And it's poison. It's poison to a society. I mean, it might work in a small group where they're trying to create solidarity and go, oh, we're the chosen ones. We're the best people. We're these special people. Okay, fine. But when you try to impose that on somebody else or when you say that, therefore, you're supposed to be in charge of the world or at least my country. No. I'm going to stand against that. And I hope we all do. And in particular, let me speak to the white people out there. This is a poison in our community that is killing people in other communities and has for centuries. And it's time to end it. It's time to point out that the so-called science that this is based on is BS. That the politics that this is based on is the most craven, cheap, easy, lazy, sleazy kind of politics imaginable. And yet, you know, it, it lives on for those, precisely for those reasons. And that the people who have been sucked into believing this stuff, whether it is like explicit at the top of their minds, like this is the thing they talk about all the time, or whether it's just some deep thing that's way, maybe even below their level of consciousness, which, frankly, I think is true of pretty much every white person. I can tell you it was certainly true of me at much younger times in my life. You know, before I really understood what was going on. Just, you just assume, oh, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. Whatever this is, right? This is destroying America. And as these white supremacists and white nationalists get more and more aggressive and more and more organized, particularly over on Facebook, but as, as more and more of this comes about, it's going to tear this country apart even harder and even farther. Then you've got outside forces. You've got other countries that don't believe in democracy, who are very offended by the fact that we have a democracy, that don't want democracy to come to their country, and so they want to discredit it here. You've got those governments openly, or in, some, in most cases covertly, frankly, funding white nationalism in the United States, and in France, and in Germany, and in England, and frankly, in every so-called democratic country in the world. Certainly in Brazil, certainly in, in the Philippines. Yeah, I mean, they all put their own local spin on it, but it's essentially the same thing. It's hate. It's amazing. A couple of things that I wanted to talk about. Number one, the CDC is loosening up mask requirements if you are fully vaccinated, two weeks past your second vaccine, if you had the two-dose vaccine, then you need not wear a mask in public. Fauci said, unless you're going to be around a lot of people, you know, or real, you know, jammed up. Really what this is, in my opinion, and I'm not a physician and this isn't medical advice, I'm sharing with you what I'm reading in the popular press and in the medical literature that I read, is that the rare breakthrough cases, and that's frankly what people who are vaccinated have to fear, in the rare breakthrough cases, and a breakthrough being defined as a person who's fully vaccinated getting sick with COVID, 
in those rare cases, it appears, and again, there's not good data on this yet. They're just compiling this now. This is early stages. But it appears that the thing that provokes the breakthrough, yes, there are some people that the vaccine just didn't work so well on because they were immunocompromised or there was something going on with them or they just don't react to vaccine, you know, whatever. I mean, there's some small subset of the population that, or they're taking immunosuppressive drugs and there's a bunch of those on the market. So they didn't develop the immunity that they should have had. There's that. But mostly it has to do with the level of the virus that you get, that you inhale, which is the principal way it gets in into the body. We know now that this is a virus that pretty much does not transmit. Like flu, you can get it from surfaces, right? Uh, you know, it's why they, uh, in a lot of public bathrooms, they no longer have doors with doorknobs because the flu, uh, you know, among other things, I mean, E. coli and other things would get on it. And so now, you know, you, you just go in and walk through the maze to get into the restroom. COVID doesn't get spread that way. It doesn't get spread by contact. You don't have to wash your food anymore, but it is through the air. So apparently if somebody just kind of walks by while they're breathing and they've got COVID and you just get a few viruses inhaled, your immune system can easily handle that. But if you're up close with them and they're really blowing out the viruses and you're inhaling a lot of them, hundreds of millions or billions of them, then your immune system just doesn't have the capacity to deal with that and the breakthrough happens. So, you know, basically what he's saying is, yeah, you can go outside without a mask anymore. Louise and I have not worn a mask on our walks for about a week now. And most of the people we see outside are not wearing masks, but we're all still avoiding each other by about six feet. You know, we're still trying to, and if I'm walking, if I'm forced to walk close to somebody, I hold my breath. <laughs> and maybe I'm being OCD or crazy about this, but you know, if I was going like to a farmer's market or something, you know, where there's a lot of people and you're gonna bump into people and stuff like that, I would still wear a mask, just me. I'm not, again, this is not medical advice. I'm just telling you, you know, my thoughts on it. But generally speaking, I think, you know, it's uh, we're getting to the point where we can be a lot more reasonable about this and a lot more rational about it. James in Clear Lake, California. Hey, James, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? You said that we no longer have to wash our food. Two questions on right. that. Does that apply to everything we bring in the house? And is that yes. in a CDC guideline? Yes. Yeah, the CDC, this was maybe a month or two, actually maybe two or three months ago, they announced that the evidence of transmission of COVID via surfaces is almost entirely lacking. They can't even find good examples of it, good cases of it. Now, you know, we still, of course, want to wash the food when it comes into our house just for normal hygiene and, and in case it's got nasty bacteria on it. And it's always good to wash your hands and wash surfaces that a lot of people touch so that you don't get the flu, for example, or even the common cold. But COVID, don't worry about COVID and you don't need to scrub your vegetables and be hyper careful about, you know, handling things any longer, James. Thank you very much. Clear it up for you. I missed that report. I've still been watching You're welcome. until today. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've we've been careful, you know, and we used to like, you know, even if we got like a pizza, you know, from uh, delivered to us, we would we would stick it in the oven and recook it a little bit just to try to kill anything that might be on it. We put it in the box, you know, in the oven. 
we no longer do that. And we're taking it easy on that stuff because, because of those reports. James, thanks for the call. Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. What's on my mind today is the biggest revelation of the week seemed to go unnoticed. I just got your book, Cracking the Code. Awesome book. I've learned Thank so you. much just in the first three chapters. I can't believe it, how much better communicator I'm going to be. And that book tells you about subconscious communication. Well, I think Mark Exberg, the defense secretary, answered the question subconsciously. I don't think he answered the question posed to him, but he did answer the question. And that was, why didn't he send the National Guard? He didn't want it to look like a military coup. Well, if you think about it, if, they were, if the civilians were successful and they sent the National Guard in too soon, it would have looked like a military coup. He was in because on Because it would have been a reverse coup. coup. They would have been yeah, undoing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it would have looked like a military wow. coup because instead of instead of it looking like it was a people's revolution, it would have looked like the military stepped in and did it. And that was the optics they did not want. This Mark Esberg planned to overthrow our government and they were going to sell it as a people's revolution. Sorry, yeah. math does not lie, and that's what the math says. Yeah, that's what the math I think you're right, Paul. I think you're right. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And and then when you look at AOC, she was talking to Chris Miller and uh, she nailed him. You know, she's she wanted to figure out and nail down a basic timeline. And he was basically not able to respond about, you know, what happened during those three hours. Why didn't you mobilize the National Guard? Yeah, yeah. They were just so, sitting there waiting and hoping that this would work. And then they'd be able to sell this. I mean, I don't think I don't know how. They thought they were going to sell this as a people's Like, yeah, okay, we're going to let you guys overthrow us 81 minutes. I don't think they minutes. cared. No. I don't think they, they cared. I, th- right. I think they thought that, you know, oh, yeah, okay, That's there'll the be eruptions. Part. There'll be people in the streets. We will throw the military at them. We've been rehearsing this all year. Trump's got his own little Praetorian guard with uh, ICE. You know, I mean, he's literally, though, he was deploying ICE to D.C. to help him. That you know, some of these. CPP uh, forces, the Customs and Border Patrol people. Bottom line is, everybody's got to join their Democratic Party. We've got to get it all hands on deck and take our democracy yeah, back. I agree. I absolutely agree. And basically don't see a better, a better option. I mean, uh, it just it, it seems like to me like that's what we have to do. And I do believe that if they had been successful... You know, if they had gotten in there and they had taken, dragged Mike Pence off and hung him and, and shot Nancy Pelosi, which they were intending to do, then the vote would have been thrown to the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives would have said, OK, Donald Trump is president. There would have been all across know. America, uh, you know, you think this it was, a, you know, a million people in the streets for, you know, or 14 million people in the streets actually over time, over the course of a year for George Floyd. It would have been twice that. But they would have come down on us with the military, and that would be the end of that, and democracy would be over. I mean, that's exactly what they were working on, Paul. And frankly, now they're trying to set up 2024, and that's what my piece today over at Hartman Report is about. Paul, thanks for the call. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. 
with NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. So, bottom line here with regard to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez interviewing Christopher Miller. Uh, Christopher Miller, the guy who gave the stand-down order to begin with, in his testimony, keeps saying, well, it was around 3 o'clock, and it wasn't until around 5 o'clock that the National Guard showed up to clear it. And he keeps saying, yeah, around 3 o'clock, I said we could do this. And she nails him down that it really wasn't until 4.32 that he allowed that to happen. What I would add to that is it wasn't until 4.32 that we learned that Speaker Pelosi, Vice President Pence, and the rest of the members of Congress and the ballots were all safe. That was when they decided to send in the guard. Oh, (laughs) the coup attempt failed. So let's clear the Capitol. I mean, it sure looks to me like that's exactly what's going on here. And I think uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got that close to it. If not just laying it right out. I mean, she's not saying it like I'm saying it. But, you know, this is crazy stuff. Anyhow, I noticed over on Democratic Underground, Atticus is noting, the CDC's announcement will not immediately change my personal habits. I will continue to wear a mask when shopping, and I will avoid indoor gatherings of people who are not known to be vaccinated, and that includes restaurants. I guess you could call it a wait-and-see approach. I agree with that sentiment. I've talked several times about this. I posted a piece on Hartman Report, you know, my daily rant. I do this six days a week. And the rant today was about how the Supreme Court's decisions in Buckley and Bilotti and Citizens United basically invited psychopaths, billionaire psychopaths, to take over the Republican Party and bring into the party political psychopaths. And basically that's what's happened. The Republican Party has been taken over by psychopaths and they are pre-rigging the 2024 election. They are pre-rigging this thing. And I encourage you to check it out. I'm not going to go through the whole thing here on the air. A lot of it's stuff that we've talked about in the past, but it's, you know, kind of all pull it together in one place. But the reason I mention that is because people who subscribe to HartmanReport.com can actually reply to me if you just reply to the email that you you know that you get every morning with the daily rant it comes right into my own personal email box 
And so I get, you know, emails from people that say things like, you know, I got one this morning saying, why are you continuing to suggest that people should wear masks? Or for that matter, you know, why are you still arguing that you will not go to a doctor who is not vaccinated? You're vaccinated. What do you have to worry about? Are you some kind of chicken? What's what's the deal? What are you afraid of? And I'll tell you, and it's not the first time here in Oregon, We've had, and we're a small state, you know, we're up to a little over 2 million people vaccinated. I think we have a population of a little over 3 million or in that neighborhood in the entire state. The Portland metro area is about a million. And in this little tiny state of Oregon, we have had, if my memory serves me correctly, I tweeted this out a while ago so you can find it on my Twitter timeline. It's, it's an article that was in the Oregonian, our local newspaper. 611 breakthrough cases and eight breakthrough deaths. In other words, these are people who are fully vaccinated more than two weeks after their second dose, and 611 of them got sick with COVID, and eight of them got so sick with COVID that they died. Now, that's a tiny, tiny number out of three million people in the state. That's a statewide number. Tiny number. But it's not a chance that I'm really enthusiastic about taking. I'll just tell you, right up front. You know, if some fool in front of me in a supermarket decides that, you know, he's been watching Fox News and he decides that he's not going to get vaccinated and he's now carrying a case of COVID and he's in that day or two before you get the symptoms when you're the most contagious and he's just blowing virus all over the place. I would prefer not to be one of those breakthrough cases where, because most of the breakthrough cases appear to be when people who are fully vaccinated are exposed to massive amounts of virus. So much so that their immune system, even with the help from the vaccine, can't fight it off. Now, there may be other variables as well. You know, they were immunocompromised or they were, you know, other variables. But I just, you know, I'll wear a mask. It'll keep 95% of those viruses out. So the, the virus that comes in, the little bits of virus that will come in from that, you know, ass standing in front of me in the supermarket who is pretending like he's vaccinated and he's not wearing a mask. But in fact, he never got vaccinated because he's one of these mask holes. I would just prefer not to be the guy. I mean, I don't know if you caught the news, but Bill Maher has been vaccinated for weeks I believe he's been vaccinated for like a month or thereabouts. He's he's certainly fully vaccinated. Yet, when they started production for the Bill Maher show, he tested positive for the virus. I don't want that to happen to me. I realize I might not get symptoms. I almost certainly will not end up in the hospital or dead. Although we've had eight out of three million here in Oregon. But I'm a pretty healthy guy. The odds are pretty good. But this disease can produce, even when it's mild, can produce psychosis, can produce heart attacks, can produce strokes. You know, I get it that Joe Biden and the CDC are saying everything's cool, you don't need to wear a mask. When I go to a supermarket, I'm still going to wear a mask. Call me a coward, call me whatever you want. Give me a couple weeks here to get used to this. So I'm wondering what you think about that. And then, of course, uh, there's just a lot of political news, too. Jim in Long Beach, California. Are you going to continue to wear masks in the supermarkets? 
Yeah, sure. I've been uh, hesitant to get the inoculation until about 10 days ago. I got a battled through the online thing and then called directly to my drugstore to get the J&J. But, uh, Good on you. Thank you, Tom. There's a woman in South Texas, 38th day of a hunger strike, Diane Wilson, Lavaca Bay, Texas, 72-year-old environmental activist and author, Diane Wilson, 38th day of a hunger strike to stop an oil terminal from being built on oyster beds that the Army Corps of Engineers and Biden have complete authority to stop this project, and they're going to use mercury waste to dump on top of oyster beds of several square miles, and that's what the people make their living off of, and it'll pollute the whole East Gulf Coast. And this has to be called directly to Biden and to the actual Army Corps of Engineers if people can get their numbers. And this is, you know, a crime against all of us, but it's so much going on, it gets it gets buried, you know. We're all buried yeah. under toxic waste. And one, Yeah, I one, just... I just... Uh, you know, I, I was you know not familiar I mean? with this while you were talking. I just plugged it into DuckDuckGo, and exactly. uh, there's all kinds of hits. The one I'm looking at right now is from Democracy Now! from Amy Goodman's program. And the headline, nice. uh, Texas fisherwoman Diane Wilson holds hunger strike to stop dredging for oil exports. Remarkable. Exactly. Remarkable stuff. But, but we have so, to take our calls directly to Biden, and the Army Corps can stop it. But will they? I mean, uh, there's so many things to make calls about, including... The special prosecutor, which is the conclusion of the discussion of the rampage on the 6th yep. and the scam to uh, take away the vote. Call yep. the special I'm, prosecutor. I'm with you. Please promote that because Pelosi has got to have a commission. That's ridiculous. To me. I called her office and et cetera. So please call everybody. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. we need a Lawrence Walsh. We need a. I agree. We do need a special prosecutor. Thank you. Thank you for that, Jim. And by the way, a, a couple of people on Twitter have pointed out to me the population of Oregon is 4.2 million. I said 3 million. I, I, what do I know? But so it's a little over 4 million. And we've only had eight people who've you know had breakthrough deaths. And so, like I said, it's not that big a deal. But I'm. It's going to take me a little time. I, you know, it's kind of like easing your way into a nudist colony, <laughs> at least for me. I mean, it's just such a... Anyhow, Steve in Everett, Washington. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi, Tom. Love the show. Thanks for taking my call. And Thank you. I was listening to NPR before your uh, show today, and I heard some person ranting about how, you know, all the anti-vaxxers are, you know, just hurting themselves because, you know, they got no taxations and they can uh, give it to themselves, but... We're good if we get vaccinated, and uh, and it's that's largely true, Steve. We are we are good if we're vaccinated. It's just the risk is not is not zero. It's uh, you get the flu shot. You get a different flu shot, and it happens to be on the variant or the mutation of the flu. You don't get it as bad as what they claim and everything, but you can still get it. And if you get it, then can't you spread it? But they said, no, you can't. You can't do that. So I'm thinking. Well, they actually, yeah, that's actually I've I've seen the science on that, Steve. If you're vaccinated and you test positive and this is why I was I was kind of scratching my head on Bill Marl. If you're vaccinated and you test positive and most of the people that they found that did test positive and were vaccinated were not people who had symptoms. The, The way they found them is there are some jobs like working in hospitals where every week you have to get tested. It's mandatory. You have you can't you. So whether you have symptoms or not. Bill Maher had no symptoms. 
And the doctors and nurses who were tested positive had no symptoms, and they weren't shedding viruses. Really? Yeah, well, because they I were not shedding. Way, so. They were not shedding viruses in their breath. You had to get. You, you had to stick the thing up into their sinuses to find the viruses. But they were not effectively contagious, even though they my had point, a very mild case of the disease. My point of it is, is that's not the same with the flu or the cold. And since that's we've been doing all these practices with those, is that we have been getting less of that, and it's almost eradicated the flu. And I'm thinking, you know, even if I get, I, I've had one vaccination, I'm waiting for my second, and I'm still feeling more comfortable wearing a mask, you know? Yeah, me too. Me too. And Absolutely. You know, and, I'm, and, and we don't know yet what the impact of these variants is going to be. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait a little while, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not telling anybody what to do. Steve, thank you for the call. But, you know, the bottom line is if you're vaccinated, you have a really, really high level of protection. We'll be right back. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Cracking the Code, How to Win Hearts, Change Minds, and Restore America's Original Vision. This is from the introduction, page one. My wife Louise and I live atop 30 feet of water, 100 feet from shore, in a houseboat on a river in Portland, Oregon. Or at least we did when I wrote this book. One day, I stepped out our back door onto the floating deck that serves as our backyard and found myself confronting a very upset Canada goose. He bobbed his head up and down, lifted his wings to make his body look larger and more intimidating, and ran straight at me, hissing and trying to nip at me. Observing this behavior, my comedian friend Swami Beyond Ananda, Steve Behrman, who was visiting us that week, named the bird Gussolini. I had no idea why this psycho goose was attacking me, but there was no mistake that Gussolini was trying to communicate. Stay inside that house and don't come out. I got the message, but I didn't stay inside. Said every time I went out to water the plants on my deck, I brought a broom with me to fight off Gussolini. I found out what was going on a week later when I learned from my neighbor the female goose had settled on her back deck just a few feet from our own and was sitting on a nest. I realized that Gussolini must have been the proud papa protecting his territory, and I stopped swatting at him with my broom. Gussolini has a lot to tell us about communication strategies. Even though he was just doing what a gander does when he wants a predator to leave, draw attention to himself and away from his mate, attack first and ask questions later, he was able to communicate the go-away part of his message to me pretty well. We all communicate all the time, even when we don't give much thought to what we are saying or how we're saying it. Because Gussolini was unable to use what we would call rational powers of persuasion, he communicated by going straight for the more primitive parts of my brain, the parts we shared as human and goose, the center of our gut feelings. First time Gussolini attacked, I backed off because he was successful in communicating an intent to harm me, which caused me to feel fear, the most primal and visceral of human emotions. The first key to unlocking the communication code is to understand that when we communicate, feeling comes first. Emotions will always trump intellect, at least in the short term. This emotive form of communication, however, ultimately didn't get Gussolini the response he wanted. On its own, the attack wasn't very persuasive. Instead of shooing me away, Gussolini made me angry. Effective communicators know how to get the response they want because they understand how to tailor a message to the person who's listening. They know the second key to unlocking the communication code is that the meaning of a communication is the response you get. Because Gussolini couldn't tell me his story, I had to imagine his story for myself. 
Uh, the first story I came up with was that he was simply a psycho goose trying to harm me for no reason I could understand. Second story I came up with after talking to my neighbor was the story of a dad protecting his soon-to-be-hatched goslings. Both stories accurately described what was happening, but the stories led to very different endings. The psycho goose made me angry. The dad goose made me feel protective of Gussolini himself. In politics, we tell each other stories all the time. Think about it. Politics is really nothing more than a large set of stories. The United States of America began as a story that the founders and framers told about a society that could live in harmony around the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The country was held together after the Great Depression and through a war by a story told by Franklin Roosevelt, which he called the New Deal. Ronald Reagan told a very different story, one we're still in, that he called the free market story. In Reagan's story, our corporate CEOs should run our society instead of our elected representatives because, as Reagan pointed out and probably believed, quote, the best minds are not in government. If they were, business would hire them away, end of quote from Reagan. Most of the stories we hear in the media today are scary. We're told to be afraid because the world is a bad place and people are untrustworthy. Every goose is a goosellini without understanding why. These scary stories are profitable to our infotainment industry and to the politicians who are typically allied with the barons of the infotainment industry. There is a different story, however, in which every Gussolini is a proud papa. It is a story of a world that is interconnected and of people who are fundamentally good. This is actually the traditional American liberal story, which has been told and understood since the first telling of it during the Enlightenment by thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, John Locke, and Thomas Jefferson. It's the story that reaches directly back to the founding of this country. My aim with this book is to give you the tools to tell the liberal story and to tell it well. I'll show you how the process of communication is coded, actually hardwired into our brains, and help you crack that code to become a brilliant communicator. First, though, a few concepts it's important to master. Everybody wants the best outcomes, and their behavior reflects the best tools they have to achieve those outcomes. Another way of saying this is that people always make what they think are the best choices given the circumstances and the tools they have. All behavior has, at its roots, the goal of a positive outcome. As a practical statement, this means that conservatives and liberals are both working toward the best world possible. And then it goes on from there. How do we differentiate this? How do we communicate this? Uh, the book is Cracking the Code. It's about the communication code. Becky in North Berwick, Maine. Hey, Becky, what's on your mind? Well, what's going on in my area where I live in a state that's based on tourism, the prices are outrageous. And, uh, you know, I saw a lobster roll last year that was 20 bucks. It's $30. The, the whole state mm -hmm. is, full, is booked up for the summer, people, because they know people are dying to get out. And, like, I saw a couple of concerts that we usually go to in the summer over in New Hampshire, the tickets are, are twice, you know, twice the price they were two years ago. So I think you're going to see a lot of businesses trying to make up for last year. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that's going to Which makes sense. And there's a lot of pent-up demand. I mean, this was, yeah. this was one of the things that led to the boom in the late 1940s, early 1950s, was that, you know, for, for I think it was, what, five years that we were, four, four or five years that we were involved in World War II, I guess it was four years, you know, you couldn't buy things, right? You, I mean, you had to have rationing coupons to buy butter. 
And so there was this sudden, you know, pent up demand that was just like, woof, you know, and that's that's happening now, too. And that will produce some inflation. But, you know, odds are it'll be temporary. I don't think that we are entering into at the moment anyway. I'm not seeing, you know, outside of housing material, building materials, which, you know, I think to some extent are being affected by demand, um, but also are being affected by weather disasters. We're seeing more houses being blown down. We're seeing more houses being burned down. We're seeing more houses being, you know, the, the walls being frozen and the pipes bursting as a result of climate change now. I mean, this is becoming an annual horror show. And that's driving up lumber prices. It's driving up copper prices. It's driving up, you know, uh, copper pipe and copper wiring prices. Those things are real, and those inflations will be echoing through the economy. So, Becky, thank you for the report from Berwick, Maine. And thank you all for being with us today. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So call your local Democratic Party and ask how you can volunteer. Just the absolute best place to start. Or if there's a particular issue that really gets, you know, that's your issue, whether it's animal cruelty or climate change, you know, find a group and involve yourself. There's, there's so much you can do. Tag your it. I have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered Internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement of the restrictions apply.